Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I have the pleasure to welcome James Murray as my guest. James manages the Metropolitan Glasgow Strategic Drainage Partnership, and he'll tell us in a second how the city region thinks about and manages rainfall to end uncontrolled flooding and improve water quality. In light of the recent news around floodings in Europe, one could say that Glasgow had a head start with the large 2002 ones, and I know that's not the kind of head start you would wish for. Yet, when flooding happens, you can whether blame everyone or decide to start doing things differently. That's the route Glasgow followed, and James will tell you much more in just a minute. But to tease you a bit, the bottom line is that they decided to use as little steel, concrete and hard engineering as possible and to rather leverage nature-based solutions. Today we'll discuss keeping water on the surface, managing the risk of flooding, some crazy clever ideas applied in Glasgow, taking everyone on board but also climate change, blue-green infrastructure, sustainable drainage, COP26 and so much more. If you're curious about nature-based solutions, we're actually starting a trilogy today that will continue with Marc Barra from the H2020 Regreen project next week, looking at nature-based solutions in cities and close with Silvana Di Sabatino in two weeks to discuss the H2020 Operandum project that looks at the rural and natural territories part of the topic. I'll also have the honor to host all three of them in a dedicated session of the United Nations Innovate for Cities conference on the 13th of October. All the information is in the show notes. If you're new to this podcast, consider subscribing. And if you like it, please share it with a couple of friends or colleagues I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, James. Welcome to the show. Hi, Antoine. So we will be going into a very interesting topic in just a minute and talk a lot. Of, let me spoil a bit about blue-green infrastructure and a lot of stuff around what you're doing right now around that in Glasgow. But we have traditions that start with our postcard for today and you're sending me a postcard from somewhere in Scotland but what can you tell me about the place you're at right now that I would ignore by now? At the moment I'm sitting at home um, as a lot of people are doing at the moment yes I'm in the west coast of, of or the western side of the central part of Scotland close to Glasgow um, I don't actually live in Glasgow myself but part of, I know, I, where I live is part of the wider metropolitan area the the city region we call it Glasgow city region which yeah has a total population of about 2 million Glasgow the city itself has a population of about 600,000 but as with a lot of uh, cities it tends to bleed into other areas and other smaller towns that that you know people tend to include as part of the bigger area but um, yes sitting here we've had a, a very dry summer relatively speaking certainly for Glasgow and for Scotland more broadly, going into drought in some areas of Scotland, which uh, is surprising for a lot of people that Scotland would ever get to drought. We have had a few big 
flood events uh, insofar as heavy rain has caused flooding for people and properties, but nothing on the scale of what's happened elsewhere in Europe and around the world this summer. So Glasgow has yet again been relatively lucky in that regard. But yeah, as I say, it's been, been pretty dry, but with one or two thunderstorms. I think we'll come back to the topic of floods, climate change, how to adapt to all of that, what you can do, what you can plan. But right before, when I was reviewing your, your path, and as I already spoiled, that we will be discussing a lot about blue-green infrastructure and how you can have nature-based solutions, I saw that you're a civil engineer. That's your background, or you were trained as a civil engineer. And I was just wondering, you know, because um, I've seen that also in the material that you, you shared with me before having this discussion, there's this hard engineering on one end, and then there is the, the blue-green approach. And to me, those are somehow two different tracks. Is it true, or I'm really making that too complex? I would say, uh, as a civil engineer by background, um, my, my, my degree was in environmental civil engineering, so that maybe makes a, a slight difference. But yeah, traditionally, uh, civil engineering has been about the, the, the big projects, the construction, the hard stuff. But as we'll probably go on to talk on talk about later on, we need to transition to softer approaches these days uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And my career over the past 10, 15 years has been doing that. So less concrete and steel these days and, and more of the, the vegetation is the direction that I've been going in with my career. But also the industry uh, as a whole has been going in somewhat slowly challenges that there are many of and yeah we'll probably talk a bit more about that but um yes yeah, the direction that i think most things are, are going in these days to place all of that into a frame so that we understand where you are at right now and, and and why we're having this discussion together can you define what the metropolitan glasgow strategic drainage partnership is and and maybe in the next step i might be saying mgsdp <laughs> Certainly, most people do tend to refer to it as MJSDP, and even then, you know, get the letters in the wrong order. It's it's not very friendly to say, but yeah, the, the MJSDP is a, a non-statutory collaborative partnership of organisations that basically have a responsibility for the drainage systems in the in the Glasgow city region. So. There's the usual suspects there in terms of local authorities, but also um, Scottish Water and SEPA and other organisations like sort of, uh, Clyde Gateway and Scottish Canals and other sort of slightly removed organisations, but key stakeholders for us. And the MGSDP really came about as a result of flooding that happened in Glasgow, primarily Glasgow in 2002. And following that flooding, there was quite a bit of, I would say, finger pointing between organisations saying that, that that was your fault and you know, saying, no, no, that was your fault. So the, the main organisations in the council and Scottish Water uh, working with SEPA, um, who's the environmental regulator in Scotland, basically said, look, we need to be doing this better. We need to stop pointing fingers at each other because you know water doesn't observe a constituency boundary. It, it doesn't look to see whose pipe it's going in. It just goes where water goes. So we need to have a, a joined up approach in terms of dealing with the impacts of flooding and trying to reduce flooding. So the, the MGSTP was really born from that and needed to work more collaboratively. 
that need to work more collaboratively became part of, I guess you'd say, law in Scotland insofar as in, in 2009, the Flood Risk Management Act puts a duty on certain organisations to work in a collaborative manner. And that's really been enshrined by the process that the MGSTP has adopted in terms of working together. So it's originally stemmed from 2002. It's been going for a long time, the MGSTP, but you know the, the MGSTP in its modern form probably around 2009. But it, it's really come from recognising the need to work with others to try and reduce flood risk primarily, but then bring other things into that as well. So that means that your approach, which started almost 20 years ago with that, those floods in 2002, became the law. But does that make you a pioneer? I mean, was it copying or emulating something which was existing somewhere else? Or did you really create something? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure we could ever claim to have created anything or created the or been the first to recognize that there is merits in working together. And you know, all you know, a lot of big organizations have silos within them and, and between each other. So yeah, whilst we, we wouldn't claim to have come up with that idea, it's certainly true that in formulating the legislation for the 2009 Act, I think all organizations that were involved in, in the management of water in Scotland recognized that yeah, that there's, there's an issue here. We need to be working together better and putting something in the act around that will help to ensure that happens because of what learning was being drawn out of those initial discussions as part of the, the MGSTP coming together. You mentioned that the founding event was this flood and that the founding topic around what you were working was really this prevention of floods. And you said also in the, in the introduction that this whole matter of engineering and hard to soft engineering transition has changed quite a lot over the past 20 years or a bit more. I can tell you a bit of my, my personal story here. My, my father was a professor of hydraulic engineering and of river management. So how do you prevent those floods? So I've yeah. been raised into the topics since as long as I recall. But when you say flood prevention, the first thing that, that comes to my mind is, oh, great, you can build huge stuff out of concrete, stones, uh, upstream, downstream, and you're going to control the river from the beginning to the end of your region where you're active. And then whatever happens downstream is someone else's problem. If I get you right, now that I made really this devil advocates approach, your approach is totally different. But was it from day one that you said you want to go to this soft side of things? Or did it all come on the way of this almost 20 years of history? I think what was also happening in parallel in the industry, certainly in the United Kingdom and certainly in Scotland, was the formulation of what we would term as sustainable drainage, sometimes referred to as sustainable urban drainage systems or SUDs. Now, that's basically followed principles of um, best management practices that, that come from the US quite a number of years ago. And it's basically a, around trying to manage water closer to where it lands trying to reuse surface water if we can, but certainly trying to slow it down and control it before it gets into the formal piped drainage network. So since around about, again, also, I, I, I'm going to struggle to get the dates right here, but early to late 2000s, Scotland brought in SUDS legislation under the, the Water Environment and Water Control Act, and that basically requires any 
new development in Scotland. So if you're building two or more houses, then you need to have suds as part of that. You need to have a sustainable drainage system. And that basically means that you need to have some form of attenuation and some form of water quality treatment for your development. So suds is very much predicated on trying to use natural as far as possible methods to to control water and that very often will mean using green infrastructure blue green infrastructure as we usually term it but also things like attenuation that may be below ground so not very green but at least providing attenuation at least slowing down runoff as it comes off the site before it gets into the the formal drainage network and that's really driven from recognizing that particularly in our urban areas and this is the same all over the world drainage systems when it starts to rain in any significant degree are usually very quickly at capacity the space in the drainage system is very quickly taken up now that's particularly true for pipe systems um, but also for rivers uh, as we build more and more urban area with more and more impermeable surface that sheds water more quickly so uh, yeah, as I say, as the MGSP was coming together, the SUDS legislation came in for Scotland and that has helped to drive the way that the MGSP partners have been thinking about managing water and moving less from, from trying to have less concrete and steel and big walls, etc., to managing water closer to where it lands, um, source control, slowing it down before it gets into the pipes, gets into the rivers, and using blue-green infrastructure where we can to do that. Um, one thing I would just pull you up on in terms of the terminology, you know, we, we, we try not to, and I trip up over this, but we, we try not to, and certainly when we're speaking with politicians or councillors, we, we try to avoid using the word prevent because it's about flood risk management. If we get enough rainfall, flooding will still happen, and we've had some recent experiences of that in Glasgow at the start of July and the start of August we had some intense, effectively summer thunderstorms and the, the system just got swamped. And in one particular location, people flooded out their homes. Some of them are still out of their homes. And there was a project delivered in that location uh, about five or six years ago, a couple of million pounds worth of project to provide additional capacity in the system. And despite that, these people were still flooded this time they quite naturally react and say, but, but you told me I wouldn't flood again. This project you did would prevent that. And someone probably did say that at the time, but they shouldn't have. We shouldn't have said prevent. We shouldn't have said stop the flooding. We should have said this will reduce the risk of flooding. But as if you, know, if you get enough rain, you're probably still going to get some flooding. And it's then about managing what happens with that flooding when it does occur. Is it a difficult message to bring across? Because somehow it's saying, you know, engineering will not save you from everything. I mean, you have to be having a bit of humility. We are living within nature. And sometimes nature is still stronger than we can anticipate. Absolutely. It's, it's very difficult to try and communicate, particularly with non-technical people. So I feel like Joe Public, uh, the man and woman on the street who doesn't have a background in engineering, doesn't have a technical background. If we talk about reducing risk, they don't understand what that means. If we talk about return periods, it's very easy for them to misinterpret 
for return periods are and what they mean. An example being, you know, it, it's very common for, for people to talk about a, a one in 100 year event. Now, that doesn't mean that event is only going to happen once every 100 years. It means it's got a 1% chance of happening in any given year. But the public don't understand that. So, you know, you have to try and be careful with the, the language we use, the terminology. But similarly, if we say to someone, you know, it, it's an event that's got a 1% chance of happening in any given year, they don't really know what that means either. So it's a difficult area, but certainly you know, trying to, and we, we continue to do this with our politicians and councillors, trying to stop them saying, you know, this scheme will prevent flooding, this scheme will stop flooding. We, we say, you know, say it will reduce the risk of flooding, it will help to manage flooding, it will help to reduce the impacts of flooding, but it's very dangerous to say that something will stop flooding because Sod's Law says, you know, next year you're going to get a big storm event and flooding will happen and, and you'll get a lot of flack and pressure from the press and from, from uh, the people who are impacted by that. Let me sidetrack you here a, a bit, and I'm sorry for that, but I saw that in the, in the documentation you sent me that you noticed that the events were getting a bit worse over the past decade compared to the average of what they used to be before. And to that extent, does our perception of what has one person chance of happening every year still pertain true with the, the consequences of climate change? Or do you also have to adapt there the thresholds and to say a centennial event is now something a bit different from what it used to be in our books? Yeah, it's it's a it's a very good point, Matt. And again, something that's difficult to communicate. But undoubtedly, with climate change, we are seeing more rainfall in total. Although it doesn't necessarily mean that it will always be a lot of rain. You know, there will be dry periods. As I say, Scotland for the past three months has had well below average rainfall. But we have had a couple of days where we had intense thunderstorms and summer storms did cause flooding. And yes. You know, schemes that were built 10, 20 years ago that at the time using the current design guides and uh, the climate allowances at the time, we would probably say that that scheme had been built, again, using this, this old terminology for a, to protect to a, a, a one in 200 year level of service. Nowadays, that may have gone down. It may only be protecting to, and again, to use the old way of referring to it, one in 160-year event level of protection. So, yeah, with climate change, we are definitely seeing more rain and it will impact the level of protection that is being given to properties, to businesses that, that have had schemes delivered already. Saying that, you know, you, you, you very rarely get exactly a one in 200-year event. It will be a bit bigger than that or a bit smaller than that. So design criteria that's used... Um, should reflect your best understanding and, and the accepted principles at the time. But yeah, with climate change, we are going to see more flooding. We are seeing more flooding happening. Regarding this, I try to be careful with the words I pick. So with this mitigation of flood events or with uh, yeah, whatever you can do to, <laughs> to smoothen the consequence of a possible flood event, there was one in the list of projects that I saw from what you did, which uh, honestly, I have never seen nowhere else in the world. So maybe I might be really 
a total ignorant here, so you, you're going to tell me, but that was this concept of the smart kennel, that you, uh, you can preventively notice that, meteorologically speaking, something will happen in the next days or in the next hours, I don't know. So you can take the, the, the level of the kennel and bring it down by 10 centimeters, which gives you so much more retention capacity. Can you tell us a bit about that? How did you come with the idea? Is it as new as it sounds? So the, the, the idea of the smart canal basically came from having significant areas of North Glasgow that were vacant and derelict, um, a drive to deliver more housing. It's a particular challenge in the UK and wanting to um, find a way to deliver that housing in the north of Glasgow, where we realized that the constraint on the housing, in addition to other things like contaminated ground, etc., was around the drainage capacity, you know, the combined sewer in that area and combined sewers serve most of Glasgow, just didn't have capacity to take the surface water. The fill was fine, but the surface water couldn't go in there. And there are no remaining small tributaries and water courses left in the north of Glasgow. They've all been lost to the sewer system. So one option was to potentially drive a, a tunnel uh, all the way down to the Clyde, um, which, you know, priced at maybe something like £40 million. The other option was to look at the canal. You know, the canal already moves water about central Scotland and utilise that existing asset to manage surface water for the north of Glasgow. So the idea that um, was developed was to use weather forecast data to look ahead and see when there's a, essentially when is there going to be a big storm likely to impact the north of Glasgow and install on the canal, on the inlets to the canal controls and on the outlets from the canal controls so that when the weather forecast radar data tells us the storm's coming to up to 24 hours in advance, lower a long section of the canal by only up to 100 millimetres. So it's, it's not a huge amount it's been lowered by, but if we lower it by that much over a very long stretch, then it provides a significant volume to act like a sponge to soak up the water or the surface water coming off these development sites. Now, each of the development sites will have its own suds, so it will already be attenuating the, the, the flow to some extent, but they have limited capacity and they still need somewhere to discharge. So using the, the, the weather forecast, we can control the inflows, we can lower the outlets, um, most of them are weirs, we just lower them a bit and that drops the canal down by up to 100 millimetres, which then provides capacity for the surface water to come in when the storm hits and uh, rainwater's coming off, surface water's coming off these development sites. So it's fully autonomous, um, smart is, is the badge that we give it. It's not a brand new concept, I would say, but it's, a, it's certainly the first time that we're aware of that it's been implemented on this scale. It is operational now. We're still catching up with building out all these development sites. So the, the first development site, the flows um, were connected just about two weeks ago. And there's more sites to come online, but the, the system's there, it's operational. We obviously don't want to drop the depth of the canal too much because that could have an impact on the stability of the banks of the, the canal and also would have a slight impact on navigation in the canal. So we don't want to drop it too much, but um, by dropping it 100 mil provides us that significant volume and allows us to regenerate significant areas of North Glasgow. So, um, you know, a, a great project and um, I'd say now we're, 
we're waiting for more areas to be connected and we're waiting for a big storm to come to really take. Which is kind of tricky because you, you, you have to, to wait for a storm, but on the other hand, you don't want a storm neither. So it's a, it's a bit, uh, it must be a mixed feeling. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and the other bit I should add, to, the question people do ask is, so where does all that water you take out of the canal go? And it goes to the River Kelvin, but um, it goes to the River Kelvin before the storms arrived. So the water has got time in terms of the, you know, the, where the hydrographs meet. It's got time to put it into the Kelvin, to put it into the Clyde and out to the, to the uh, coast before the River Kelvin comes up because of any storms as well. That brings me to another piece of the puzzle, which is the water quality. Because if you were taking the first runoff of, of a storm and putting it in the canal, that may be a problem because that first runoff is probably the most heavily polluted. But on the other end, if you really look at all of that into a system, you mentioned that first the suds are going to absorb the first wave, which means the part which is the most polluted is going to stay somehow there and be treated naturally. And you only, with brackets, collect the runoffs, which are almost just rainwater to the canal. Is, is it really that, that systemic approach that you are aiming for? Absolutely, yeah. The, the suds, as you say, um, in each development site, it will have its own suds elements. So the first site that's connected is Site Hill, and it, it's got basins, and it's got street trees, and it's got rain gardens, and it's got a linear canal feature. And all those suds are providing that initial bit of attenuation and also water quality, so, so helping to treat the water before it goes into the canal. And what we do also have as part of the system is various sensors in terms of not just flow um, and level sensors, but also various water quality parameters that are being taken as well. So as the system starts to really bed in and, and the development sites are connected, we'll also be able to track water quality and, and see what impact it has on the canal itself. How um, networked is all of that? Because you mentioned that a SUD is something which is, if I got right, mandatory from a double house on, so up to much bigger, I guess, but, but starting with the double house. And I guess that on the level of a double house, you probably don't have a fully digital, IoT, uh, all the buzzwords which I can drop at you, uh, which is implemented. So what you are doing on the canal, probably you cannot do exactly the same in every small SUDS. So do you also have a global approach to this full network of smaller pieces of the puzzle? No, and that's a big issue, I would say, for the United Kingdom as a whole, and certainly for Scotland, is that... Um, you know, we, we design and put these suds in, and, and you're quite right, for anything, two houses or more will require suds, but they generally don't have any monitoring, they don't have any smarts attached to it. So, and certainly in Scotland, unless unless there is some reason someone either phones up to complain about the quality or the state or the, the condition of a suds feature, then they're not monitored proactively. It will really just be reactive maintenance. So for the smart canal system, we do have some monitoring in there because it's important that we try and retain the good water quality that's in the canal. So we will be able to see if there's a problem from uh, any of the develop individual development sites. If there's a problem in terms of water quality, we will see that. But you know, for the rest of developments in, in Scotland, suds are not monitored in terms of quality or quantity. They have a design there, they're constructed and they basically just leave it to carry on. 
in Scotland, SUDS, Sustainable Drainage Systems, can generally either be maintained by the, the council. So the city council will adopt some elements of SUDS. Some will be adopted or a term is vested by Scottish Water. And SUDS that are adopted or vested by Scottish Water or the council will have more confidence in the maintenance that they are getting because they will have a, a maintenance plan which talks about how often it should be inspected and, and you know an inspection should then pick up any issues. There's a third strand to SUDS is that quite a lot of SUDS will be privately maintained, so either by individuals or organisations, and we have less confidence around how often they are doing that maintenance, how often they are doing that inspection. But you know, it, it is the way the system set up in Scotland that you can have SUDS elements that are privately maintained, and it does give us, I think, in the industry a little bit more cause for concern as to what the, the quality of the maintenance is and how quickly they would pick up any problems. There's one thing that caught my attention when I was uh, reading your, your documentation. You have a strong take, which is you want to keep the water as much as possible on the surface. First, why? <laughs> and then how is that perceived and how do you bring the message forward that that is important that the water stays on the on the surface? It's, it's a, a challenge and it continues to be a challenge. Um, I think the developer community, so basically the contractors, but the people who are designing homes and who are building homes nowadays are getting better at it. The general public, I think as part of the, the, the wider growing climate awareness are, are possibly getting better, but only really have scratched the surface on it. But yeah, if we can keep water on the surface, it just slows it down and it gives it a chance to be used by vegetation. Uh, it gives it a chance to be evaporated by the sun, even, even in Scotland, before it gets into the drainage system. We don't tend to have much infiltration, certainly not in the west of Scotland, because we've got very heavy clay soils that don't lend themselves to infiltration. But if we can, you know, take up and use some of the water by plants and, and uh, by loss by evaporation, then that just reduces the amount of it that's getting into the pipes drainage network. So, you know, we'll use basins and ponds and, and swales and rain gardens, all those sorts of features to try and slow it down, but also try and try and improve some of the quality of it as well, because a lot of suds will ultimately discharge to a, a river or a water course. So if we're wanting to improve the quality of the water courses, then doing that treatment and quality upstream closer to the source, preferably on the surface, will um, help with that. The other thing about managing water on the surface is it, it makes it much easier to see if you've got a problem and to see where that problem is. It's, it becomes obvious uh, more quickly. So it, it does make for easier management. And at the start of SUDS, it was really about quantity and quality. It was about slowing it down and improving the quality of the runoff from the site. Those were the primary drivers. But I, I think you know all the industry recognises these days you, you can get so many additional benefits through managing water on the surface with blue-green infrastructure. So there's, there's stuff around biodiversity, there's, there's health, mental health benefits, there's heat benefits, there's air quality benefits, there's noise benefits through having more blue-green infrastructure. But we do come up against challenges on that and, and there, are, there are tensions, particularly in developments where for you know, developers that are ultimately looking to build as many houses as possible to maximise their profit. And 
Some will see an argument that the nice blue-green infrastructure helps to add value to the property so they can sell them for more. But generally, as they try to get as many units as possible on a site, that takes up the available land and you have certain criteria for types of land that you need to provide. You need to provide some open space for that community and you need to provide parking for that community, etc. So it introduces tensions around land use. And if you're having if you've got suds where it's managing water on the surface, then you obviously can't park your car on top of a suds basin or a suds pond. So it's a little bit of tension there. So developers might We'll generally try to put any suds below ground, and, and in that case, you arguably lose any water quality benefits. It's more just about attenuation. So there are, there are definitely tensions there with developers. There are still also tensions we find with local communities where I think it's it's particular in Scotland, um, maybe the UK, certainly when compared to our, our continental cousins that we, we have a more risk-averse approach to open bodies of water. We are not as comfortable having open water around us. Now, this is despite the fact that we've got a canal through part of Glasgow and we've got you know, River Clyde going through in some areas. It, some people will perceive a, a pond as being a danger to people, a danger to life. And whilst there is a little bit of truth in that, it represents such a small danger that when contrasted with the benefits that you can get from that, it's hugely outweighs, you know, the, the benefits hugely outweigh those risks. But but some people in the communities still don't want to have an open body of water where, you know, they, they think there's a risk that a child will drown or something like that. It continues to be a source of frustration for us when, you know, we will have our whole community serviced by multiple roads and, you know, People die on roads as well. In general, people think, well, we need to have roads. We don't need to have water managed on the surface. Put it in a pipe, put it underground, and then that risk is gone. So it's a challenge. But again, we're, we're, you know, we're improving on that. We're, we're getting the message out there. As more and more of these suds are delivered, people see them in their communities and, and are beginning to be more comfortable with them, particularly if it's a new build community. So if the houses are being built, at the same time as the suds, then people move into that community and the water's there. Where, and what we're trying to do these days to the MGSCP is, is trying to do more retrofit. So we've got an existing community, existing homes that are already, if you like, used to not having water on the surface. So when we come along and we say we need to do some retrofit and we want to manage water on the surface, that that is particularly where the tensions come to the surface because you're you're the way they perceive it is you're introducing a risk to them. They've already been used to living with the roads, for example, but they haven't had open water. So when you bring that to them, it does present a, a bit of a challenge in terms of communication and understanding. Many things to uncover in what you just said. Let me first send the people back to a discussion I had on that microphone with Michael Stanegalistofer, where we were addressing the benefits of investing in a river in a city. And he was citing a study which is showing that whatever dollar you invest into renaturating a river in the middle of a city, if you put all the benefits together, it's $4 for one, which is not too bad as an investment when you think of it. I'm really interested in the how. How do you convince people that that is the right way to do it? What is your approach? How, how do you approach people to take them on board? Because you cannot change the way you manage water against the population. So I guess you must have kind of a way to, to take them on board. 
Yeah, I, what I would say is there, there's always going to be some people you're, you're never going to convince. So, you, you know, as, as you do a, a feasibility study into what it is you want to do and you have engagement as part of that and you try and explain to people what it is you're doing and what the benefits will be, one of the things we tend to find or we, we can find is that people will be interested in the benefits for themselves but not necessarily for other people. So they can be, to some extent, selfish um, about it. Now, to some extent, that's, that's human nature. You want, to see, see what's in it. You, want to, you want to focus on things that are important to you and not necessarily to the person who's down the bottom of the hill who's being impacted by the flooding. So, you know, as, as I say, water doesn't observe boundaries, you know, constituency boundaries or local area boundaries. It goes where it wants to go. And, and that is a challenge for... You know, if, if we are looking to put something further up the catchment that's going to provide a, a flood risk benefit for further down in the catchment, the people up the catchment are saying, well, well what, what is in it for me? Now, you can talk about the benefits that we, we've mentioned about biodiversity and heat and cooling, etc. And um, some people will be persuaded by that and some people won't. Particularly if you're doing retrofit in the urban area, that there are a couple of really what we found really sensitive areas for existing residents and and that's really going to be around car parking uh, and it's going to be around litter and it's going to be around access for their property and if you're going to be reducing the number of car parking spaces in an area it's going to be very difficult to get everyone on board with that but if you can tie it in with active travel measures that you also bring in as part of the overall scheme, then that can help to soften that, that blow for some people. But yeah, I think it's, it's about trying to explain the, the overall benefits that are coming and trying to, try to get people to see that it shouldn't just be a benefit for their community, but for the wider community. But at the end of the day, you won't get everyone on board with it. There will still be people who don't like it. The other point, the, the other particular issue which comes up time and again is trees. People are very passionate about trees, existing trees and losing trees. And as you know, for a number of the schemes that we've delivered, particularly if we are delivering a, a surface water intervention in an existing park, we will have to take down some trees to, to build that basin or that pond. And we always then plant some more trees not necessarily in that same park but it might be another park elsewhere in the city so you know we're trying to keep that overall balance and in fact we're planting more trees than we ever take down but again some people become very passionate about trees now as long as we've got the right design and as long as we are comfortable that, that it's it's needed to take down those trees and we don't take down trees that we don't need to then you know we'll we'll go forward with the scheme, but again, you won't convince everyone that it's the right thing to do. It's interesting when we also talk about the benefits of of delivering this stuff and and how much benefit you get for the pound that you're spending. The challenge that we have, and this includes even with colleagues within the industry, is who actually gets that benefit. You know, how is that benefit realised? Because if you're talking about the, the mental health benefits of having nicer green space around you in the urban area, it's generally not Scottish Water or the council that gets that as a direct pound in its pocket. It's, it's the health service that's getting that. So for Scotland overall, it's beneficial. It's the right thing to do. 
But um, for the person who is putting up the capital funding to deliver that project, they might not get that that particular bit of the benefit. Now, we will do a, a cost-benefit analysis for the project, and as long as that stacks up, then yes, there's benefit to deliver it from a capital and funding point of view. But these additional benefits may be realised by other sectors or the community or other organisations, and you try and you try and draw the links to them to help make your argument for funding to deliver projects. But some people will just say, "Well, I'm not getting that pound in my pocket," so. You know, that's not going to convince me. It, it is a challenge. It is a challenge. But in general, we've had support for all the projects we've delivered. There will always be one or two dissenting voices. Does that speak in favor of extending your approach to a broader scheme? I don't know if it's different in, in Glasgow than it is in, in other cities in, in Scotland, but do you think your approach can be replicated, can be enhanced, can become a national approach? Or... Is it the perfect shape to say the metropolitan area around Glasgow is the best size in terms of, of magnitude of things? The general approach in terms of you know, collaboration and uh, engagement and then trying to ultimately pool resources and deliver projects together uh, can be applied anywhere. Um, it, it's really, you know, in Scotland, it was the MGSTP that first started doing it as an area. But yeah, it can be applied anywhere and you know, the, the drivers might be slightly different in different places. But, you know, Glasgow, we've got a mix of all the drivers there. We've got, we've got existing flood risk. We've got water quality that we want to improve in the, in the, in the, the, the water environment. Um, we've got regeneration and development that we want to deliver with a predominantly combined sewer catchments that you know can take the foul but it can't take any more surface water so um we've got the whole full range of circumstances that's that's helping to drive um a collaborative approach but yeah i think it can be delivered anywhere but whether you need a an, a formal organization like the mgsdp or whether it's just a case of the main parties working together it, you know will be very much area specific but the thrust of going for more blue green infrastructure really is is being rolled out across Scotland. It's been driven by Scottish government and terms like placemaking and terms like water resilient places are becoming much more common usage. It's been driven partly also by the climate emergency. People realise there's a need to do something. I think one thing that I would reflect on is that as part of the climate emergency, There still is a, a huge focus on climate mitigation, you know, net zero, we must get to net zero. And climate adaptation still lags behind in terms of uh, finance and delivery. Um, so we certainly could do more with rebalancing that because even if we get to net zero by all the various targets that have been set by cities and governments around the world, we've still got a lot of climate change we're going to have to deal with now. Glasgow's already got flood risk and that's just going to get worse with the changing climate. So we need more adaptation and that is helping a bit, but um, there's still, you know, there's, there still is a bit of a, I think it's termed the adaptation gap, this gap between investment and action on mitigation versus adaptation. But that, that adaptation um, element is growing and that's helping to deliver blue-green infrastructure as well because of the additional benefits. What is your long-term game What will tell you in some decades? 
I've seen 2060 as a horizon in your documentation that you, you've made it, that you achieved something and you have in-between steps which will tell you that you're on the right path. It's a very good question, but very difficult to answer because personally, I don't think we'll ever get there because we're, we're going to be, you know, we, we'd like to get to a stage where that we don't have any uncontrolled flooding. And that means that we recognize flooding will still happen, but we want to be able to manage where that flooding happens and how it happens. Um, so that's, that's, you know, putting in measures to reduce the risk of flooding, but also recognizing that with exceedance, you're still, and you know, if you get a big enough storm event, you will still get flooding, but now you're going to be managing where that happens. You're going to be recognizing that hopefully the, the work that you've done means properties aren't flooding, but maybe roads will be flooding. And that's more acceptable. Certainly parks will be flooding because that's more acceptable than roads flooding and roads is more acceptable than houses or businesses flooding. So we want to get to a point where we say, you know, we're not going to have any uncontrolled flooding. Ultimately, I don't think we'll ever get there, but that's the direction we're going in. Um, so you know, we haven't put down any hard metrics to say if we've delivered X amount of investment or if we've delivered X meters squared of blue-green infrastructure, then we'll have done it because I, I don't think we'll ever get there. Um, we just need to keep working at it. Now, it would be good to have um, this, this target for 2060. And the difficulty with having a target that's, say, 2060 is it's so far away that it doesn't really engender any sense of urgency. But to the same extent, we think that you know, it's going to take as long as 2060 to get to the point where we think we probably have stopped uncontrolled flooding and it's now controlled flooding, i.e. You know, we know where it's going to happen and we can manage that and we can manage the impacts of it. Yeah, I, I don't know if that directly answered your question, but I don't, th you know, we, I, I don't think we will ever quite get there, but we're going to get better and better and we're going to take those steps along the way. But you know, as we make those positive steps, we're going to have to deal with climate change and we're going to have to deal with more rainfall you know we are going to be getting more rainfall and we are going to be getting those intense summer downpours that are particularly difficult to manage and glasgow and other places um i'm sure in scotland but also around the world are also having to contend with squeeze on budgets for doing things like maintenance so that that presents a challenge as well if we are delivering blue-green infrastructure, that you know, vegetation grows. It needs to have some level of maintenance, so you need to allow for that in your funding cycles. And for traditional ways of managing pipe systems and roads, you maybe have to change the way you do things slightly, which requires a little bit of, or there's a little bit of friction there in terms of getting people to change the way that they're doing things and the way that they're managing things. But again, we're, we're going in the right direction. But yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever quite get there, but we are delivering more. But it takes a lot of money. I mean, that's that's the, the big, the, you know, the one thing that I draw out of this. The new stuff, new build is relatively easy because we know what we need to do. It's, it's trying to unpick the existing urban environment, the existing cities and towns where we're not wiping it clean and starting again. We're having to work around those existing blocks of properties and, and streets and we're trying to put the blue gear infrastructure back in there. We're trying to retrofit it. And my goodness, that, that's expensive. And it's, it's 
difficult to do and it causes significant disruption. And it's not just to people's homes, but it's to people's businesses as well. So, you know, if you're going to dig up a road to put in blue-green infrastructure, you might have roadworks there for a year, a year and a half, and that's a significant impact upon a business. Um, so you need to consider those things as well in your projects as you're delivering them. What is, you know, what are the overall pluses and minuses of what we're looking to do here? But it, yeah, it is expensive. You know, you've got services everywhere. You've got, uh, you've got potentially in some some areas contaminated ground that you need to deal with. The other thing that we have here, and I'm sure it's, it's the same in, in many other cities as well, is it was conflicting priorities. You know, Glasgow is trying to do a lot of um, active travel measures in the city. Uh, some of it's been very successfully done through COVID and is going to be retained long term. So if, if you've got a road that's a certain size and you want to put in some blue-green infrastructure and you want to put in a cycle lane, that brings tension again. That brings tension between the active travel and the existing cars and congestion and the flood risk and water quality and health and biodiversity benefits of this blue-green infrastructure. So it's not easy. It's not easy. Last question in that, that deep dive. What is your role in all of that? My role is, is uh, well, I guess the... the possible way you could describe is is mostly administrative so i i'm tasked with trying to keep the the sort of behind the scenes wheels turning in terms of the mgstp and the various partner organizations working together so a lot of that's basic administration but there's project management in there um, i also get involved in a technical aspect uh, at a, a relatively high level on some projects as well you know, I get active in terms of involved engagement with communities um, on certain projects. But yeah, my role, I, I think, is, is mostly you know, almost almost behind the scenes, but helping to keep the, the wheels going, keeping the partners meeting, uh, ensuring that things are flowing smoothly in terms of, of information and engagement. Well, James, it's been a fascinating deep dive into that living matter, which you are dealing with uh, at uh, MSGDP. I propose you to switch to the rapid-fire questions to round off our discussion. It's time for the rapid-fire questions. In that last section, I tried to keep the questions short, and your duty is to try to keep the answers short. I'm not cutting the microphone, but we have to play by, by the rules of the game. <laughs> I will do my best. So my first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I, I think it's probably the Smart Canal because it, it really is uh, bringing forward, uh, and it almost sounds cliched, but 21st century technology and, and bringing in that smart element because there's, there's so much more you can do. You, know, you apply that smart process to other things. So we're, we're, we're about to build a couple of nurseries in Glasgow that will have rainwater harvesting but we'll also link to weather forecasting. So, you know, rainwater harvesting, you, you tend to store a volume of water to reuse it in the building and reduce your potable water draw. Um, so these nurseries will be smart. When a storm's forecast, they'll drain down these tanks ahead of the storm so that that maximum capacity is available for attenuation when the, the rain does come. So the, the smart canal is really leading the way on that, but it's, it's done at a huge scale but you know, we're, we're going to see more of that happening and, and more of that rolled out across the city. Let me sidetrack you here. So you see, I'm guilty. I'm the one which is not going by the rules. Do you know Brian Molony? 
is the, the founder of Storm Harvester. He was on that microphone explaining how his company is aiming to do exactly that, to have the, the weather forecast and to then preventively empty some, some reserves and then use some green water as well in the building. So if you haven't listened to his interview, I would recommend you to have a look. And if you already know him, I'm familiar with the name, but I haven't listened to the interview. I will do that. But um, it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, it just makes sense. But it's just when when you bring in smart stuff, um, it has a level of complexity that then needs managed longer term. And um, yeah, it, it's I guess the, the Luddite view would be it's more to go wrong. But I think the, the, the benefits are, are clear to see if you can get that system up and running and working well. What's your favorite part of your current job? Um, I think my favorite part is getting to getting to see at a relatively high level um, all the various things that the partners are doing. So I, I'm sort of plugged into all the different projects that the partners have, have got underway so that I can help them share information and awareness and share that knowledge with our wider community. Um, so I really enjoy the fact that I, I'm privileged to have that sort of overview of, of what people are are doing and um there's a lot going on there it really is a lot going on glasgow's had a lot of investment hundreds of millions of pounds of investment and is getting a lot more investment and um, there's a lot more coming as, as well it's sometimes a challenge when you're asking for more money people will say but you know you've just already spent lots and lots of money you're not fixed it yet so no we've still got a long way to go what is the trend to watch out for in the water industry? I think the trend to watch out for is, again, the smarts. Um, so we've, we've touched on it a couple of times. It's particularly if you've got existing assets that you can you know, re really uh, make work a bit harder. So building new stuff, great, let's put the smart on that. And that should be relatively easy. But with all these existing assets, can we get more out of them by applying some technology, by, by making them work a bit harder. What is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project? And what is the one you care the least about? I think I care most when working on a new project, probably around, uh, probably on, the, on the, 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 the money, because it's the money that decides, it's the cost that decides whether it will go ahead or not. And if... You know, some of the projects that we've delivered, we've had to trim out elements of the scope as we've gone along because costs have gone up for a variety of reasons. You know, whether it's it's more services or contamination, um, or just unexpected stuff, or whether it's for things like COVID and the the costs and delays that that resulted in, or whether it's things like Brexit and getting supplies and materials now and, and all that. Um, so I care about the cost because if if you don't look at the bottom line then the project's probably not going to go ahead or it's not going to deliver all that you want it to deliver. What do I care least about? I probably care least about the, and this hopefully this didn't clash with my previous answer, but the, the program. So yes, if your program stretches out, it's generally going to cost you more. But um, you know, if you've got a handle on those costs and, and you can you can manage the costs, then I'm not too bothered about it getting done exactly on time as long as it gets done. Now, it has no common impact for many other things um, in terms of the overall program, but ultimately I, I, want, I want to deliver that thing. If I've decided it's the right thing to do and I've got the money to deliver it, then I want to see that done. I want to see it finished um, no matter how long it takes. 
Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? I think the, 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 probably the best website for the UK as a whole is one called Sustrain, S-U-S-D-R-A-I-N. And that really focuses on sustainable drainage um, across the whole of the UK. So it, it's got good examples of projects in there. Um, it's got good uh, links to case studies. It's got good reference to uh, key sources of literature. So, yeah, that's probably the, the, the place to go, I think, in the UK overall. Accepting, noting is that you know there are differences in the UK. So the, the Scotland, England, Wales, even Northern Ireland have different, slightly different setups and slightly different ways of doing things. Um, but yeah, Sustrain, I think, is probably the best website overall. I'll put the links in the show notes if you're, you're looking for that. Would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that same microphone? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say um, if you can get hold of uh, a person called Julie Waldron, who, who works for Edinburgh City Council. Julie's actually been, uh, has won the title of the Sustrain Suds Champion of the Year this year. Um, so Julie's doing pushing a lot in, uh, in Edinburgh City Council in terms of, again, blue-green infrastructure and place-making and, and resilience and adaptation. So, yeah, I think, I think Julie would be a, a good person to try and get on. Well, James, it's been a pleasure to spend that uh, a bit more of an hour with you. I'd love to see how you'll be presenting all of that in the upcoming events. You, you mentioned shortly before we started and we pushed the record button today that... Uh, You'll be involved with COP26, which is, I guess, a big chunk of, of bread on your table. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a, lot, a lot going on for COP26. Um, I think the difficulty for, for any organization or initiative during COP26 is just trying to be seen um, because there's going to be so much going on. But yes, it's certainly going to keep us busy. It's a big focus for, for Glasgow as a city. It comes with it, its usual challenges around you know, policing and access and there will undoubtedly be protests as well. And it's good that the community makes its voice heard. But yeah, it's, it's certainly a, a busy time at the moment. Um, and certainly on, on MGSTP stuff, I can talk for ages on that. Well then, I'm looking forward to those next talks which you will be giving. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.